It's the 23rd of September, 2021. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. Almost three years to the day, I did a podcast and it was titled, I Want a New Drug. I invoked the name Huey Lewis, talked about new drugs for I don't know what. But as I go over this week's podcast and the content I'm going to cover, I want to say it again. I want a new drug version two this time. I need a new drug for pregnancy, at least safe enough to use during pregnancy. For GVHD, for PMR, what about inclusion body myositis? Is that not in the same category as scleroderma? We need a new drug. Well, I'm going to cover these today. But first, patient characteristics may inform your treatment approach with specific patient populations. A biomarker-driven study with precisely defined inclusion criteria looked at Arencia, Abitacept, and a TNF inhibitor. Don't treat in the dark. Visit ArenciaData.com. We're going to start with a study of lupus patients and looked at the efficacy and impact of telemedicine in their care. This is a study of almost 435 patients who were followed during the pandemic, right smack dab in the middle of it. I believe this is from Italy. And they compared patients who were seen face-to-face and those who were seen by telemedicine. I want to say it was about 25-75 favoring face-to-face over telemedicine. When they looked at, you know, key variables of how good we're doing, how good the patient's doing, they basically showed it made no difference. Patients in both groups had equal disease activity, as measured by sleedi 2 k They had equal rates of flares, although they were obviously providing care in two disparate ways. They even had the same degree of steroid prescribing. Um, This backs up what I've asserted all along. I think that telemedicine should be half your business or a quarter of your business. Um, Those of you who don't like computers and, you know, Zoom, being a Zoomatologist, maybe you you won't do it. Um, I, I still think it's highly effective. If you have a video connection, a good audio connection, and you've got a process, I would encourage you to keep it up. Um, A nice study on polymyalgia rheumatica and a new therapy for it appeared just recently in Lancet Rheumatology. I was kind of taken aback by this title, but it basically says rituximab in polymyalgia rheumatica. What, are you out of your mind? Well, I think maybe there's a... Um, a limit here that they screened over 116 patients. They uh, enrolled 49. So that's maybe what, about a 45% enrollment rate. That's not too bad for most studies. 47 out of 49 completed the trial. So it's a low patient number. Half and half put on rituximab or placebo, meaning sham infusions. And when they looked at the outcomes at week 24, week 21, steroid free remission was much higher with rituximab. 49% versus 21% on placebo. Um, Infusion reactions were um, a little bit more with rituximab, 10 versus 3. But again, no real serious side effects here. There was one serious adverse event, a pulmonary embolism in a patient that was on rituximab. You know, I would never have thought that B-cell targeting would be highly effective, but the more I think about it, you know, there's no good reason it wouldn't be effective in PMR. Now, would you go as far as rituximab in treating PMR? Um, in fact, there is some literature anecdotal in the, uh, in the in, on PubMed that you could find saying that rituximab could work in refractory or difficult patients here. I find this surprising. 
A nice com- comforting new report comes from the Eli Lilly Global Safety Database on its drug Ixakizumab, uh, also known as TALTS, and their experience with pregnancies. They found a total of 193 pregnancies. This is a big number, folks. Again, there are no trials here of our drugs, you know, in, in, in biologics in pregnant women, with, regardless of the disease. So this is what they were able to identify in their database from clinical trials and other patients that they've collected. These are patients with psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, and ankylosing spondylitis who were exposed to ixacazumab around the time of conception or during the pregnancy. Um, they had incomplete data on, on all the patients, but live births looked like it was about 60%, uh, which is not a bad number when you consider that there were miscarriages and, uh, and other um, pre- complications of pregnancy. But there were no congenital malformations, no major malformations seen in those that were exposed to exochizumab. Again, no control group and whatnot, but uh, there are patients with these spondyloarthropathy disorders who will need to be on therapy uh, to, get pregnancy, to get pregnant or maybe throughout their pregnancy. Uh, news from the FDA, they've approved a drug that you don't care about, ruxolotinib, also called Jacophy, um, for chronic GVHD. A serious need for new therapies with, uh, G, uh, for GVHD. Uh, again, the issue here is um, I think that now the FDA is back in the business of looking at all the applications for JAK inhibitor approval that have been put on hold since February of this year. And this is what I mean. We're going to now see rulings by the FDA on atopic dermatitis um, and also on ankylosing spondylitis for TOFA and UPA and also for psoriatic arthritis for upadacitinib. We're waiting those decisions, and I think seeing this one come out on GVHD probably was an easy decision for them, and now they're going to get into the other one. So look for those coming up. I would predict they get the same um, indications. Um, a nice look at lupus and therapy. You know, I kind of assume lupus is treated aggressively. This is a diagnosis uh, of basically young people, either pediatric lupus or young adult lupus, age 10 to 24. Um, and when they looked at this cohort, they showed that, yeah, 78% got uh, hydroxychloroquine. Everybody got hydroxychloroquine. 78 got uh, some kind of um, um, steroid-sparing DMARD, actually with most of those being hydroxychloroquine. There were, however, much fewer who were given immunosuppressants like azathioprine and mycophenolate, only 34%. Don't know if that's, um, there's no control group here, and uh, it seems a little low to me. But again, these are new onset. Young patients with lupus tend to have aggressive lupus. Um, I wonder if, in there, if there isn't a delay, uh, a significant delay here in the um, use of these drugs in young people with lupus. Uh, you know, we take care of a lot of different kinds of crystal arthropathies. What better place to look at crystal arthropathies than the VA Medical Center? This is a case-controlled study of a large cohort. Um, 23,000 patients with CPPD were compared to 83,000 without CPPD, over 250,000 patient years of experience from the VA. To answer the question, do CPPD patients have a higher risk of major adverse uh, cardiac events. You know, CPPD got a list of comorbidities and disease associations as long as your arm. 
you know, it wouldn't be surprising that um, a higher rate of atherosclerotic disease wouldn't be seen here or, or may see events, but it turns out it was not. The hazard ratio is basically one. However, when they did further analysis, uh, MI and CVA and acute coronary syndrome were. So not all definitions of MACE were, but the major ones were increased in patients with CPPD. I hope that made sense to you. It made sense to me. So I don't know if you were, what you're calling the new, um, newly approved uh, and the drugs that have been out for a while under EUA's COVID-19 vaccines. What are you calling? I mean, I'm calling it the Pfizer or the Moderna or the J&J. But you know what? The drugs actually have names. At least two of the three do. And and I so um, the Pfizer vaccine, um, you know, BNT, blah, 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 14 different um, letters. It almost looks like a password, actually, rather than a drug name. But it has a trade name now, and it's called Comirnaty. Comirnaty. Um, I like better the trade name for the Moderna vaccine, uh, and it's called Spikevax. Sounds like a, you know, Death Race 2000 kind of game. Um, Spikevax from Moderna. We're waiting for J&J to come through with its name, so hopefully in the near future. Um, and I picked these up because they were listed in names registered with the Canadian Health Authorities. Uh, the same names will be used in the U.S., I would assume. Uh, a prospective study of uh, flare rates using these vaccines, um, specifically just actually the, the BioNTech BNT162B2 lowercase b at the end, again, a good password, instead of your old password, which was password or 1234, or your dog's name, Floyd. Um, a study of 77 patients, RA, in remission, they get the uh, two shots of the BN1, BNT162B2 vaccine, also known as Comirnaty. I'm going to have to work on that. Um, and you know, they adhere to ACR guidelines. They stopped and held uh, certain DMARDs. And the incidence of vaccine-related flare rates was almost 8%, six patients out of the 77 uh, or so. Five out of the six flares occurred after the second dose, um, a mean of 2.6 days. So they happened pretty quick. You know, this is actually a study that sort of measured everything and looked at it. I'm sure you would tell me the same in your experience. I've heard this from a number of our colleagues out there that they're seeing this sort of thing. I think maybe the, one of the most impactful reports this past week was uh, Lenny Calabrese wrote a blog on his experience in developing a breakthrough COVID infection after he's received his, vaccine, his two vaccinations of an mRNA vaccine. Uh, and he went on a trip to a medical meeting and came back and, yes, he had COVID. It was mild, but not that mild. He didn't have to go to the hospital, but he was sick for a while. Uh, he's recovered nicely, and he wrote, wrote about it in a really really nice um, blog published on Helio and Helio, thanks to them, allowed us to publish that on Room Now. So breakthrough infection is a big issue for our patients. Lenny's also written about breakthrough infections in our patients who are still immunosuppressed with, you know, no um, um, S uh, spike protein antibodies, um, maybe rituximab, maybe they're immunosuppressed. You know, we need to worry about those patients developing another strategy. So look for another report on that. It's called a, a PrEP approach, if you will. Um, but uh, a nice re, uh, piece comes from BNJ, the British Medical Journal, 
where they look at breakthrough infections, looking at a UK database called Q Research. Um, this is about 12 million lives, about almost 7 million of them were in fact vaccinated. Um, uh, and looking at the, um, the numbers here, 74% received the two vaccine doses. Um, and overall, um, there was um, 2,000 COVID-19 deaths, 1,900 hospital admissions. Basically, the death rate was 4%, and admission rate um, was uh, about the same. Um, those who had COVID deaths were um, tend to be older, tend to be deprivation. Don't know what that means in UK terms. I mean, I don't know if that means you're short of cigarettes or short on money or, or poor health. It's hard to know. Um, it's not described in the paper. Males were higher risk. Indians and Pakistanis at higher risk. The highest risk was seen, seen in those who had uh, Down syndrome, hazard ratio 12.7. Renal transplant, eightfold increased risk. Sickle cell, eightfold increased risk. Nursing home patients, fourfold. Chemotherapy, fourfold. HIV and AIDS, threefold. Also threefold for liver cirrhosis and multiple types of CNS disease and dementia. There were um, other conditions with about a one. 0.2 to twofold increased risk. And those are things that we usually, I think, would associate with uh, higher risk with COVID. Things like um, heart disease, CHF, atrial fibrillation, croak, stroke, CVD, COPD, CKD, hematologic cancers, epilepsy, those with PVD, type 2 diabetes. So that's the profile. Um, and, and Lenny points out that um, of the patients who are um, hospitalized with breakthrough infections, high percentage of them have autoimmune disease. And that's a little worrisome why we need to stay, pay attention to this uh, and what's going on right now with this Delta variant. Uh, a nice report from Mayo Clinic, and it was seen in Arthritis Research and Therapy. This is a case controlled study, really well done, looking at statin exposure and does it increase the risk of developing RA, 32,000 RA, and a match control group basically showed statin use was the same. Um, in both groups, uh, both groups, that while there was a slight increase in the RA group, odds ratio of 1.12, confidence intervals that were above one, the significance of this was lost after they corrected for hyperlip hyperlipidemia. So um, statins are often, often thrown around as a potential cause for rheumatoid arthritis. What other drugs might cause rheumatoid arthritis? Well, I'm going to cover that at the end of the podcast. High comorbidity rates with inclusion body myositis was written about this past week. You know, we know it's a difficult diagnosis. We know patients are refractory to therapy. Um, this is a cohort study from the Journal of Rheumatology. 50 uh, inclusion body myositis patients were compared to a similar cohort of inflammatory myositis and, and uh, population controls without myositis. The IBM patients had a higher rate of peripheral neuropathy, a threefold increased risk at 35%, a higher rate of Sjogren's syndrome, a six-fold increased risk and total number of 6%, and a higher rate of hematologic malignancies, many of which were T-cell, uh, large T-cell uh, LGL leukemias. Overall, a higher mortality was seen in the inclusion body myositis patients. So 10-year survival was only 36% in those with IBM, 67% with idiopathic inflammatory myositis and 59% in the age match controls. IBM, not a good diagnosis to have. Again, a hard diagnosis to make. 
A nice report from Philip Meese appears in uh, Lancet Rheumatology. This is a um, pooled uh, sub-analysis study using data collected on large numbers of patients in the Discovery 1, Discovery 2, that's Gaselkamab being used in patients with psoriatic arthritis. It was shown, you know it works in psoriasis, you know it's been shown to work in psoriatic arthritis. In this analysis of, uh, I, I don't know, over 1,000 patients, they looked at just those patients who had imaging-proven uh, sacroiliitis. And the inclusion cohort here was 312 patients um, and when they looked at those who were treated with gaselkamab versus placebo, they and they were treated either with uh, infusion or treatment every four weeks or every eight weeks, um, B27 found in 30% of these 312 patients, uh, it was shown to work. It worked. It was safe. No, no new safety signals. The it, it was effective as measured by against placebo, as measured by BASDI change, BASDI 50 response, and ASDAS uh, responses as well. So, um, again, IL-23 isn't usually, uh, hasn't thus far been all that successful in axial spondyloarthritis. This is an indication that, in at least in axial psoriatic arthritis, it seems to work. So, I intimated before that I was going to tell you about drugs that cause rheumatoid arthritis or drugs that cause arthritis. I wrote a, an article today, that, or yesterday, 11 drugs that cause arthritis. Can you name four of them? All right, so rattle them off. One, all right, one, I agree. Two, good. Three, no, no, no. What are you thinking? Let me just give you my list, all right? And we'll do it my way. Steroids, number one. Alcohol, number two. Yes, alcohol is a drug. It's a depressant. Number three, diuretics. Lasix, hydrochlorothiazide causing gout. Again, steroids, alcohol, diuretics, all causing gout. The first two also causing myopathy and, and avascular necrosis. Aromatase inhibitors. Again, drugs like Fremara and Arimidex. Um, you know, strange arthralgias, not well understood. Um, my best therapy for that is replace their vitamin D and maybe they get better. Number four, Cipro and the quinolones. As you know, the FDA has said don't use these drugs when other options exist because they can cause, yes, tendonitis, ruptured tendons. Number five, Checkpoint inhibitors, all the rage in cancer, all the rage in rheumatology, causing IRAEs that look like, as you know, um, and we're actually the least common involved organ system, I think, of all the ones that it causes. But when it does affect the musculoskeletal system, PMR, um, myositis, uh, RA, PSA, to name a few. Um, that's number five. Serum sick? No, no, that's all leave that. To, um, SGLT2 inhibitors used for diabetes. That includes drugs like Invokana and Jardians have been associated with osteoporosis. Interestingly, they reduce the risk of, of gout. Drugs that cause drug-induced lupus. You know, again, as long as your arm, you know, you know what those drugs are. Um, uh, the tetracycline, minocyclines, um, and TNF inhibitors are, are, are high on the list, but it's a big, long list, and it's, got, it's well beyond the old days of procainamide and hydralazine. Um, cytokine therapy and growth factor therapy. Cytokine therapy with IL-2 um, or recombinant IL-2 or uh, interferon therapy associated with a lot of arthralgias and musculoskeletal complaints, as are growth factor therapies, GMCSF, Nupigen, things like that, flares of arthritis and actually causing arthralgias and arthritis. There's a whole long list of drugs that cause serum sickness. Serum sickness, as you know, causes fever, 
um, uh, rash, uh, urticaria, and polyarthralgia, if not polyarthritis. Um, it is often seen with um, antivenom, antitoxin therapy. It can be seen with rituximab and with infliximab. It's seen sometimes with vaccination, and a, and a number of different antibiotics have been linked with serum sickness. And the last one is on my list and not on yours, and that's ADD drugs. Yeah, that are blame. They don't cause arthritis directly, but ADD drugs cause horrible sleep in a high percentage of patients and bad sleep. And the patients who are getting ADD, they're just ripe for fibromyalgia. So they come in with aches and pains and arthralgias, myalgias, and also fatigue. Uh, all ADD drugs. Get them to lessen it. Get them to stop it. Find a, find a new drug, as Huey Lewis says. Uh, we'll close with one more um, uh Backtalk question, a viewer question, Dr. Nata Scoff from uh, Nebraska asked the question, what's your differential for a positive anti-double-stranded DNA in the absence clinical, of, of clinical evidence of lupus? They do crithidia assays in uh, their labs. How would you approach this lab result? My first answer is it's a lab result. I don't treat labs no matter what. I can worry about labs, and I'm certainly going to worry about a double-stranded DNA more so than an ANA, and we blow off ANAs all the time, although a small percentage of those could progress to something. But um, double-stranded DNAs uh, isolated by themselves without any other lab abnormalities, uh, and I'm assuming that you did other autoantibodies, um, and if not, you should do oh, maybe an array of autoantibodies. That might tell you increase the possibility of a cancer or Sjogren's or, or uh, hepatitis. Um, um, and, you know, other acute phase reactants um, and whatnot. But, again, a, a lab by itself, double-stranded DNA by itself, and even in any titer, is still not a diagnosis. It's a reason to follow the patient. I have seen this. I'm sure many of you have seen this. My most common things that I've seen are usually um, active or occult liver disease, especially autoimmune hepatitis um, and uh, uh, chronic active hepatitis, uh, any kind of chronic liver involvement. Um, patients with antiphospholipid syndrome patients with Sjogren's syndrome, maybe the bad kind of Sjogren's that might progress to lymphoma. Um, again, um, I might dot the I and cross the T here and look for those. But otherwise, um, you know, I think you just follow and maybe follow a little bit more regularly than you would an ANA positive consult, which actually I don't see back in, until they come back for another complaint. Anyway, that's it for the podcast. Go to the website to check out these citations and more. But before you go, listen up. In recent years, it's become increasingly possible to identify higher risk rheumatoid arthritis patients, even at the time of diagnosis. This allows rheumatologists to make more informed treatment decisions based on individual patient profiles. For example, several studies have been published showing that seropositivity for anti-CCP and RF together can influence patient outcomes. The results suggest that serologic status may be used to optimize one's approach. To see these biomarker-driven results and to learn more, please visit rabiomarkers.com.